We have communed at the Lord's table with the risen Christ. We've communed here with one another. This table is a symbol that we are no longer in fellowship with the world in its orientation against God. Here, we declare that Jesus died in our place to suffer God's righteous judgment against us as sinners, and that He conquered the grave, granting us resurrection life in Him. Here, we declare that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and that we are redeemed, Spirit-baptized, chosen people. And here... At this particular place, we typically reaffirm our covenant together. Because like the Lord's Supper, our covenant emphasizes our communion as members of the body of Christ. Now the Bible does not direct us to do that. It doesn't say that we must read that, and I don't think any particular harm is done when we choose not to. Perhaps some wonder why we even have a church covenant. Is it biblical for us to covenant together as a local church? Is it necessary? Is it even wise? Before we turn to the Scriptures, I'd like you to picture two churches. You can paint them however you'd like, but they're two churches that are five times the size of Eden Baptist Church. And both of these churches empty out five times faster on a Sunday morning. The parishioners who attend the first church do so primarily to receive grace from the church. Believing Jesus gave their church authority to dispense grace in the Mass and to forgive sins once they receive their installment of grace from the priest, they hustle home. The second church, a very different church, but it follows an entertainment-based, market-sensitive approach to ministry. Its goal is to get as big as it can. Now, the service is a rip-roaring good time. And when it's over, the crowd leaves in the way you leave a sporting event. Game's over, you leave as quickly as possible to beat the rush. Now, understand me, both of these churches might be filled with the friendliest people in town. They may participate in any number of church activities during the week, and I don't want to read too much into the way that they exit church. But their rapid clearing of the premises after the main weekly service says something about how they view the nature of the church. I need everybody to pay attention here and understand. There is nothing inherently evil about leaving church quickly. (laughs) There is nothing inherently righteous about staying after the service for a real, real long time. But some people, let's admit, attend church primarily to receive a religious service and so leave just like you leave a grocery store. You gather what you came to get, and you head home without any necessary thought of the other shoppers or the employees or the managers. You come, you receive, you leave. If we grasp the true nature of the local church as revealed in the New Testament, we will have a very different perspective. One that I think you will clearly see commends our covenanting together as members of the body of Christ. 
I'd like to consider this under two lines of evidence. So we're going to, there's not one explicit text that speaks on this matter. But we'll look at a very, this theme as it runs through Scripture in the New Testament. And I'd like us to look, first of all, at the nature of our life together as the body of Christ. So looking at how we relate to one another, what is Jesus' vision of the church? How does he see the church? What is its nature? As we relate together, let's pick up where we left off last week, Ephesians chapter 4. If you'll turn there, Ephesians chapter 4, which addresses this theme very ably as it addressed the theme last week of who are to comprise the church. The church is to be made up only of the regenerate. That's not that they're the only ones invited to attend and to participate on some level, but it is made up only of the regenerate. We come back to Ephesians 4 to consider this matter. What is the nature of our life together? Having discussed God's saving mercy and His regenerating power in the lives of His chosen people, Paul explains that Jesus gives His church, verse 11 of chapter 4, He gives them apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor-slash-teachers. Why? What is the purpose Obviously, these offices deal with feeding God's Word to His people, conveying the Word to the people. But why does God intend to do this? Why does Christ give these offices? Verse 12 explains, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You notice the emphasis here on attaining unity, on attaining maturity. There is a project that we're part of. We are to eschew the false teaching of this world to not be carried away by its doctrine, but rather to be maturing as we are fed by and cleansed by the Word of God. Practically speaking, verse 15, it looks like this. Now, think of it. He's been talking about pastor-teacher, in part, proclaiming the Word of God, purifying the church with the Word. But notice verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. And as verse 16 will bring out, this speaking the truth in love includes all of us. So as members speak the truth of God to one another in love, the body of Christ grows. It matures in union with Jesus, our living head. Let me tell you, if you are not a member, a participant in a local body of born-again believers, you have no such agenda in your life. You really ought to be jealous just on this point. People live their lives so disjointed from one another and probably even within your own family and extended family, there's all kinds of difficulties and wars and troubles. But as we come into the church, it too is a family with all of its sins and trials, but there is a project going on here of maturing with other people, of growing in your soul as it's knit together with the body of Christ. 
Now, for those of us who know the Lord and are members and participants in the church, this is taking place as we speak the truth in love. From the risen and reigning Christ, verse 16, then the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As we worship and heed the wisdom of our head, Jesus, the body is strengthened and it is matured in love. There is a community project that we work on together. As we fulfill our function, we encourage one another to grow in Christ. Is this an isolated concept in the New Testament? Is it found just here in the book of Ephesians? Clearly not. It pervades the New Testament text, and I invite you to the book of Hebrews next. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Notice this very same theme. We're not sure of the author of this book specifically. There's some evidence that it could be different than Paul, but either way, we have here a different audience. And the very same theme is sounded in chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 12. Listen to it. Take care, brothers, that is the brotherhood, the body of Christ, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. How do you read that? The verse is addressed to brothers, that is to professing believers, and there is a warning here about falling away. That means to depart from the life of faith in Jesus Christ. Every professing believer is susceptible to becoming hardened to the things of God. How are we to combat that danger? Verse 13, but not allowing this unbelieving heart to cause you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, ultimately, only God can keep us in the faith, but, you notice the word but, it introduces the counter-offensive against apostasy. It is to exhort one another every day. Now, this will happen in the public ministry of the Word on the Lord's Day, and prominently so. We gather as a church to hear the Word of God and to continue to grow into Christ and to set aside and reject false teaching that will draw us away. But this exhortation project is also an everyday, every-member matter. I don't think it's saying here, do this every day as a command. It has to be every 24-hour period. But it's saying that it's an ongoing matter. We are to be building one another up in the faith every day, every one of us. Verse 14, for we share in Christ. That is, we have the common bond of salvation in Jesus. We are born again if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, many people read that. How do you read it? They read that verse and say, we have Christ, we are born again, unless we sin and lose our salvation. Is that what this verse is teaching? It could certainly be read that way. 
I don't think that's the right understanding because of so many other texts of Scripture. But what is it saying then? We share in Christ if indeed. That means we share in Christ and we evidence this reality if we persevere in our faith until we meet Jesus. Now there's a point here we really have to grasp. You are not a genuine born-again believer in Jesus simply because you made a profession of faith in Christ at one point in your past. You are a genuine believer in Christ insofar as you will continue trusting the gospel until you meet Jesus. Now when Christ saves us, he saves us for time and eternity. But we discern that saving grace as we persevere in the faith to the very end. You probably know, as I do, some who have professed salvation and with great joy and excitement began to follow Christ only to lose connection with Jesus. To become coldened and hardened and deceived against the things of God. And if such people persist in this pattern of behavior until the end, it is an evidence that they did not share in Christ. Those who share in Christ hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, there may be a false profession and a person comes to a genuine profession later on in life, and we hold out hope for that. But it's not the fact that we one time had an experience and professed faith in Christ, and as vital and important as that often is. What is vital is that we persist in the faith. How are we going to do that? Only God can enable us to do that. But we see here as well that we are to use words to be the instrument of God to keep us in the faith. We are to speak words of love and encouragement such that we continue forward and continue to hold on to this truth in Christ, to trust the gospel. Now, the author sounds this very same theme in chapter 10, and we're more familiar with this passage, but they really dovetail beautifully, and we need to bring it in here. Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews has described the believer's privileged access to God through Christ, and then in verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. We can hold on to the faith in Christ. There's the same theme. Let us hold fast. Let us keep trusting the gospel. Let us continue to trust in Jesus crucified and risen as our only hope for eternity. To the end, let us keep trusting. And we can do so because he who promised is faithful. Now notice in verse 24, one aspect of that quest is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up one another, the Greek word could be translated urge on, stimulate, even incite one another to love and good works. As regenerate members of the body of Christ, we are to actively influence one another to pursue love and good works. To do that, we obviously need to regularly meet and gather with one another. That's verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but the opposite of neglecting the assembly is encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
So the opposite of neglecting the assembly is encouraging one another, a word which means to urge, to appeal to, to exhort, to infuse with courage. That may not come across as a sermon. In fact, I think generally it probably shouldn't as we gather at church and meet one another in the hallway and preach a three-point sermon. But it, is a, it means that we are to talk with one another, to know what's going on in one another's lives, and to build courage into one another. I ask you, what was on your mind as you entered the building for worship this morning? We have a general pattern Beth and I, as we go to bed, or at least as she does on Saturday night, so often there's a little more for me to do as I get ready for Sunday, but we pray together and we ask God to permit us to be an encouragement to someone on the Lord's day. We pray, we seek the face of God, and then know as we enter into church, we are looking to be an encouragement. We're looking to build someone up in the faith. That may be through very mundane conversation. It may be through a simple greeting. But we ask God to bring us here to encourage people. Do you come with that orientation? And how often we forget. And even praying the prayer on Saturday night doesn't mean that we come with that focus. It's a struggle. But we don't come simply to get something and run away. We come to give. We come to encourage to continue forward, encourage others to continue forward in a life of obedience and reverence to Jesus as we approach our final accounting to Him. We need to see one another understanding that young man, that older woman, that couple, that young child is going to stand before Christ someday. This isn't a myth. It's not a fantasy story. We are going to have an accounting before the Lord of the universe. And so as we are all approaching that day, we need to use words to encourage one another not to fall away from the living God, but to persevere and continue forward trusting in the Gospel. Jesus intends for our gatherings in part to grant us the opportunity to stimulate one another's faith. That's why we come together. That's who we are. And that's the nature of the church. Again, is this an isolated idea? We have time only to summarize a few passages. I just ask that you concentrate carefully. Hear the word of the Lord. To the Romans in chapter 12, Paul writes, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. To the Corinthians, care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Later in the book, he says, strive to excel in building up the church. He's not talking to the leadership of the church there. He's saying to all of you, strive to excel in building up the church. The same chapter, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or or an interpretation. That was all appropriate in that setting, to come in that way to church, although they were causing lots of problems with those things, and he's trying to clear that up. But he says, as you come with these things, let all things be done for building up. To the Philippians, he said, do nothing from rivalry or conceit 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Colossians 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let God's word be part of your mindset and flow from your tongue teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you know that is what in part singing is in the assembly? We gather here together and we lift up our voices to actively encourage and build up one another's faith. There's something to it when the voices combine. It gets pretty ugly when there's just a few and they're maybe not very good singers. It's just, it's just not as exciting, is it? But when we gather as an assembly and we lift up our songs, we are doing so to build one another's faith. Just to come and to sing is to gather to exhort and admonish and encourage and build up. Beyond this, James chapter 5 and verse 16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. We gather to encourage one another's faith by confessing our sins, by praying for one another in assembly. Now, let's just take a breath here as we think of all of these passages and all of what it's saying. It gives a certain picture about the nature of the church, doesn't it? The only way we can honor these commands is to take responsibility for a specific body of believers. As much as I love my brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world, I cannot honor these scriptures in reference to all of them. It's impossible. As much as I love my brothers and sisters in Christ and any number of good churches in the South Metro, I cannot honor these Scriptures with those believers. They're too intense. They're too involved. They take too much time. We can only honor these Scriptures with the kind of regularity necessary to affect growth in the body if we covenant to do so with a specific body of believers. And thus the church covenant. It's to say this is the nature of the church and this is the body that I intend to carry out this type of life. Now let's consider it from another angle. The nature of our life together as a body of Christ, just to turn it a little bit, we look at the nature of pastoral ministry in the body of Christ. The nature of pastoral ministry in the body of Christ also commends a certain concept about the life of the church. One of the gifts, do you remember back in Ephesians 4, that Christ gives His church is the office of pastor-teacher. When pastor-teachers faithfully expound God's Word in the church, when they fulfill their God-given function as shepherds, they serve Jesus' purpose to build up the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.16. By the purification of the Word disseminated, the body should grow and mature in the faith. We see this reality displayed in the life again of the Apostle Paul, remembering Acts chapter 20, if you'll turn there. Acts chapter 20. There's just no place in the New Testament that more clearly describes, the, at least in an active way, in a live situation, this relationship of pastoral leadership. What is the agenda of pastoral leadership? Is it to build programs? Is it to build buildings? 
Is it to bring in numbers of people or to gain earthly success? What is the nature of the church? What is the nature of pastoral ministry? What is it? Acts chapter 20, verse 18. Remembering that Paul meets with the Ephesian elders at Miletus, he says in the middle of verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Down to verse 27, he sounds this theme again. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Very important to him. At this point in the speech, Paul aims his remarks at these shepherds. Now let's consider carefully again the nature of the relationship between them and the believers in the church. Pay careful attention, verse 28, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to, literally, shepherd the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Some of you are going to be wolves. Some of you are going to be false shepherds. Therefore, verse 31, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to what? To admonish everyone with tears. We note again that this is a day-in, day-out relationship and even includes tears of warning to those who stray from the path of the living God. The faithful shepherd of the flock is zealous for the spiritual maturity of the body. Paul reflects this to the Colossians when he says, warning them to proclaim, or he says, we proclaim Christ, and he says this, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's clearly his agenda. It's his passion because he says next, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We've got to be really largely asleep or pretty dull not to be picking up a theme here. The theme of maturity, the theme of growth, the theme of laboring through speech, through disseminating the Word of God, that we would be growing as a body of Christ. Now as Paul says this, I toil, I struggle with all the energy to present you mature in Christ, he passes that same agenda on to Timothy who takes up the work at the Ephesian church. 1 Timothy chapter 4 You'll turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Writing to Timothy, note the very same theme, the very same commission. Verse 11 of 1 Timothy 4, command and teach these things, he says. That is, Timothy is to speak with authority as he calls the flock at Ephesus to heed God's word and lead a life worthy of their calling. But Timothy is to do more than simply teach, isn't he? Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
Timothy was to live among the people such that he could diffuse criticism and cynicism by the force of what? By the force of his godly example. Verse 13, Until I come, then, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That is, Timothy's job is to immerse himself and the church in the sanctifying Word of God. At the same time, admonishes Paul, verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Practically. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Timothy, look in the mirror. What's missing? What needs to change? How do you need to grow? And give careful attention also to the way that you minister the Word in the assembly for the purification of the body of Christ. Give yourself to this. Persist in it, in fact. He says at the end of verse 16, For by so doing... What are you going to do? You will save both yourself and your hearers. You will save both yourself and your hearers. That does not mean that his preaching will give and dispense salvation to the hearers. But it means that his preaching and his teaching will, will, will contribute to the sanctification of these believers. Now think again of what the agenda is. God says, speaking the truth, admonishing, encouraging, building one another up, we will make progress in the faith as we mature and as we come to presentation before Christ as His pure bride, the church. Timothy, as you disseminate the Word, you are participating in that work of Christ to sanctify and beautify the church of Christ. So give careful attention to it. Persist in it. Preaching and teaching will be hard work. Don't quit. Hebrews 13. One more passage. Hebrews 13, as we continue to get a sense of the nature of the church and the nature of this pastoral ministry within the church. Jesus using shepherds to bring people along and encourage them in the faith as they encourage one another in the faith. Hebrews 13 and verse 17 a very firm word of direction where he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, that's not a bald statement that's hanging out there with no context. It has to have the context of the whole New Testament. It has to bring with it the idea of leaders who are serving under the authority of Christ, who are doing so under the spirit of Matthew 20, that leadership in the body of Christ is ultimately service. It does so in the spirit of 1 Peter chapter 5, where we're not serving to get our way with people, but serving as under-shepherds of Christ to pour out our lives for the assembly. But with that whole context supplied, on this very succinct statement, it simply says, be submissive to those who lead you spiritually. Why? Because, and here's their work, they are keeping watch over your souls. 
These are people who are praying for you. These are people who are reading and studying and discerning the meaning of the Word of God for you. These are people who are giving admonition in the assembly. They are exhorting you in the assembly, encouraging you in the assembly, because they must give account. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. They're commissioned to keep watch over specific souls, and for their own good, that flock is to honor the admonition and direction of their shepherds. So we are to encourage, to build up, to admonish, to exhort. And the leadership of the church does that very same thing within assembly such that the church grows. And so, honor that, says the author of Hebrews to the believers in the assembly. Now let's bring this full circle to the matter of church covenant. First of all, what about church covenant and the individual? Our church covenant, well, what would happen? Let's just say it this way. What would happen if we took all of these texts, we see what God is saying about His church and its nature, we're going to take all these texts and boil them all together, what would you have? Basically, our church covenant. All our church covenant is a summation of such texts that reveal the nature of the church and our understanding of the nature of the church. We don't believe for a minute that the church exists to hand out salvation as we pass these elements. What the New Testament reveals is something very different about the way that we relate to each other, and our church covenant says here's how we understand the nature of our relationship together. Affirming our covenant permits us to agree as members on the nature and mission of the church. Affirming our covenant permits us to willingly commit ourselves to function as members who submit to the church's authority and watch care and desire to contribute to its health and its maturity. A church covenant is not, then, an extra-biblical list of arbitrary requirements. It is a succinct statement of what the regenerate life looks like within the body of Christ. It could be 15, 20, 500 times longer. But it's just a summary statement. Keeping that covenant as a church member is tangible evidence that we are persevering in the faith. Breaking covenant calls into question our salvation and thus the legitimacy of our membership in the body, generally speaking. Further, and I pushed on this just a moment earlier, entering covenant allows us to define the members of the body of Christ with whom and to whom we are committed to minister. It's with this body. It's with these people. Not to say we don't touch people outside of our assembly. Not to say people outside of our assembly are not welcome here. But it's to say we must define a circle of operation. 
it's impossible to do what Christ calls his church to do with every believer on the planet. And so the church covenant simply says, this is the body I covenant together to be the member Jesus wants me to be for the good and the growth of that assembly. Then let's look at it from the angle of the church covenant and the church itself. In the history of Christendom, many through the centuries have held that the church is coextensive with society. That is, the church and the state operate together, and a local church encompasses whoever lives around its building, believers and unbelievers. This is not our culture and our world, so we struggle with this to understand it. But just think of it in these terms. If you're living in a nation where there's a national church and the state builds your building, the state says everybody living around your building is under our jurisdiction and we're building your building. They're all in your church. Believers and unbelievers, they are part of the church. But if you live in such a culture, going back, let's say, 500 years, That was the predominant way that it was. If you live in such a culture and you go to the Scriptures and you say, I'm not seeing in the Bible what our state is doing. Building churches and choosing leaders of churches and permitting unbelievers to come in and share at the Lord's table when they live in the world. They haven't parted from the world. They haven't been born again. I see something very different in the Scriptures. We're going to form a church of Jesus Christ the way the Bible envisions it. What are you going to do? You're not going to go up to the door of the Capitol building and knock on the door and say, we'd like to form an independent church. You might end up down in the cellar in a dungeon if you went up and asked them to do that because that would be seen as seditious. Now what you're going to do is you are going to draw together as a church a covenant that permits you to define the proper nature of the church. And within that parish setting, you're going to gather people who are genuine born-again believers who commit themselves to living this way among believers. You will have to rely upon a covenant. If a church does not form along parish lines, as dictated by the state and the national church, if the church is free to operate under the authority of Christ and is to include regenerate believers, it must form as a covenanted community, as a people agreeing to submit to the legitimate authority of that particular church. In fact, I would go so far as to say it is a church's covenant to honor Scripture that bears testimony to the fact that it is a legitimate church with the God-given right to choose elders and deacons and exercise discipline with its members and administer the ordinances and live as a church of Jesus Christ. The state does not give us that authority. Christ gives us that authority. How do we know that we are submitting to Christ? We covenant together as a body of Christ to be the kind of church Christ envisions. With all of our weaknesses, with all of our failures, we are striving to be that kind of church. 
There's a reason Eden Baptist Church doesn't empty out in three minutes. Again, don't take me wrong. It's not wrong if you need to do that. I had people at the door saying to me today, I have to leave now. I said, please go. That's not the point. But when that's the nature of a church, that people simply descend upon it and run like a grocery store exit. I was in meeting with a large church just visiting And this very thing happened. I would suspect 5,000 people in that congregation, taking a wild stab. A lot of people. As we exited out of that place, I got this strange sense of deja vu of my childhood when I left a football game. It was just like it. Complete with the cigarette smoke and the cars honking and people trying and jostling. It was just like leaving a football game. It struck me. People have come to receive the entertainment. It's over. It's time to split. Now, I know in that church there's an orientation to discipleship, and I'm not drawing any conclusions about how people leave as such. But we don't run out of here. As a culture, as a church, there's a project going on here where we together are encouraging, admonishing, building one another up, to be prepared to stand before Jesus Christ someday. This world, groupings come together, but generally speaking, everybody's around one another simply to get out of it what they want for themselves. Here in this community, there should be a selfless orientation where we pour out our lives to build one another up in the faith that we would stand before Jesus Christ united and mature in Him. And so, we recite our church covenant. Not out of obligation, not out of ritual, but to say, this is the nature of the church, and this is the body that I love. Let's do so as we stand together. Having been led by divine grace to repent of our sin and trust for salvation in the substitutionary death and victorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and upon this profession having been immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We pledge to regularly attend the assembling of this church to support its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine, and to contribute willingly and faithfully to its spiritual and financial stability and its spread of the gospel to all nations. We pledge to walk together in a spirit of unity and love, to avoid all unwholesome and unedifying speech, to honor the leadership of the flock, and to exercise affectionate concern and spiritual watch care over one another. We pledge to faithfully admonish and encourage one another to live holy lives, to serve one another, to rejoice in one another's happiness, and to bear one another's burdens and sorrows with tender compassion. We pledge to be zealous for good works, to regularly read and meditate upon the Scriptures, to pray for ourselves and one another, to persevere in wise living, not causing others to stumble, rejecting ungodliness and embracing holiness 
and to seek the salvation of the lost through faithful proclamation of the Gospel. We also pledge that if we leave this assembly, we will promptly unite with another church may carry out the spirit of this covenant. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Father, we rejoice in the covenantal relationship that we have with one another and the decided purpose of Eden Baptist Church to align itself with the vision of Christ for His church. I pray that You'll deepen us, that You will grow us and mature us as a body. And as we now give, we do so with joy and gladness to contribute to the ongoing ministry of this assembly. We lay down our gifts with hearts filled with thanks for what You have done and what You will do and ask You will use them to the furtherance of Your cause. Through Christ we pray. Amen.